Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It is Monday, which means it's time. Wait, are you? I didn't press the button yet. It is Monday. Are we recording, Nico? Are we recording? <laughs> we are, Adam. We are. Everything, uh, everything is to make sure that we're all recording because it is Monday, guys, and we're here to do a final day wrap-up of the Premier League season and some of the action from around Europe on the Front Free Podcast with me, Adam Boltwood, with Chris Hennage. Good evening. And with Nico Morales, who is definitely, definitely recording. Definitely recording, Adam. Definitely. That is, a, that is a weight off my mind. Uh, guys, lots to get through. This. Let's crack into it. Uh, some fascinating final day games. Uh, considering there wasn't a whole lot at stake, um, there was. Uh, there's lots to talk about, uh, not least of which Manchester City, where we should start, really, Nico, uh, because they became the first team to reach 100 points in the Premier League with a 1-0 win over Southampton in dramatic fashion. Uh, a last gasp goal from Gabriel Jesus, sparking wild celebrations, uh, reminiscent of their their previous title win. Yeah, now they get a cool name. They they weren't going to be the Invincibles after they lost they a, a, a few a few times here and there, but now they get the Centurions. Mm. They get the the hundred point tally, and I think it's not as cool. I think it's a, it's not it, cool. it's not as cool, but mm. it's still pretty cool. I mean, Centurion is a kind of a cool name. Um, but I think that the important thing to underline here, as I was kind of thinking about it, is like. This isn't, for Manchester City, this isn't an achievement anymore in the shadow of Manchester United, which is obviously has been such a big part of the narrative and a, and a narrative that the club and the new ownership has has acknowledged, and I think that's a good thing. But it's a, it's a historical achievement. It's something that it's not a, a derby win over United or a derby or a, a big win over another team or a, you know, a title win over Manchester United, uh, as you mentioned there, that the last... Um, the historic one was the first one was sort of in the, the the dying moments. This is an achievement. All of its you know all of its own merit is lies within the the work that Manchester City put into it. And it's I think that's a really important thing is, is sort of the club continues to grow and continues to to make itself into the 
the global behemoth that we we all think it's going to be um that these kind of things happen and so 100 points even though you know it wouldn't really matter if if city drew or lost is still a a very important thing in terms of the message that cfg want to put across so this is the thing i think you know we'll come on to barcelona in a moment chris but obviously now uh, the, the sheen has been taken off of their season. It's no longer a historic title win as Nico's uh, setting out there for Manchester City. Not only is it the most points in Premier League history, it's the most wins they've got, the most goals, the most away wins, the highest win percentage in history, uh, the biggest title winning margin in Premier League history. I mean, do all these records when stacked up against each other give some credence to this idea that perhaps hasn't really sort of embedded in people's minds yet. Maybe it'll take time, you know, uh, to look back and view this team in the in the way they deserve to be viewed. But that this team are one of the greatest, if not the greatest, in Premier League history. Do you think they could be remembered as fondly as the Invincibles, Manchester United of 1999, etc.? Yes, in time. I think that's the thing, is that time time will often smooth out the edges of a team that is successful, like Manchester City or like the Invincibles, you know, change whichever um, example that you want to, to talk about. I think there's certainly an, a slight air, and I say this if you're playing devil's advocate, that Man City having the success is breaking an egg with a sledgehammer because of the sort of financial advantage that they have and, and everything attached with that. I think... As long as this is not the the peak or the apex of, of their achievement under Guardiola, I think it should be fine. But I think what you can also say is that even with every advantage that they have, it still takes a heck of a lot to go out there to win at some of the places they have in the manner that they have. Because actually, I think, and this, this could be me um, almost misremembering, but a lot of teams tried to adapt as City won more and more games this season in a way that I don't think I've seen before. I think a lot more teams really tried to just suck up space once they understood what City wanted to try and do. And I don't think there was that much sort of almost cohesion from teams in the past when it came to, to trying to stop the the you know the winners of the day, if you will, back when the Invincibles were were around and such. Like I could be misremembering, but that that's what it feels like to me. That's what feels different with this city side. They were behind this season in the Premier League for just 153 minutes, uh, which is pretty pretty staggering. Um, Manchester City, anyway, 100 points in the Premier League. Centurions, hashtag Centurions, uh, as Nico's saying there. Um, just one of the stories this afternoon. We also saw Liverpool confirm their spot in the Champions League. Uh, a pretty comfortable 4-0 win over Brighton in the end. Uh, Mohamed Salah as well, becoming the first player to score 32 goals in a 38-game Premier League season. Um, just confirming what an incredible year, what an incredible campaign it's been for the Egyptian, Nico. Yeah, for 100% sure, um, that is the case. I mean, it's incredible what Mohamed Salah has done. It's it's kind of incredible what Liverpool has done as well. I think this was one of those games, and Chris and I kind of imagined a harsher reality for Liverpool a few weeks ago where we said, you know, it is still within the realm of possibility that Liverpool miss out on the top four, and then 
it all kind of depends on what happens in the Champions League final as to where their project goes from there. But it looked like from the first minute that Liverpool were kind of going to be like, we're not leaving this up to chance. We're doing everything in our power in terms of beating the shit out of Brighton's second team um, to qualify for the Champions League, which so I think is obviously... That, yeah. <laughs> you like that, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's kind of the thing here is that this is a this is a very pivotal year for Liverpool, and I think we'll come on to talk about Tottenham as well. But th- this is a very pivotal year in terms of where they want to go as a project and qualifying for the Champions League, having players like Mohamed Salah be on the stages that they are, and I think that's that's kind of the critical moment. the The critical thing here is that you know we talk about the press coverage from Manchester City. I don't think that besides Pep Guardiola, there really isn't a central figure besides maybe De Bruyne outside of Guardiola. But there's not really a central figure that people have really latched onto with this Manchester City side. And I think that's along with the the lack of success in the Champions League. I think that's one of the things in terms of our media understanding of of the City team and our media appreciation of it. This Liverpool team is very different. They're in a Champions League final. They have a star player that has come out of nowhere. That the the everybody loves the story and everybody should love the story of Mohamed Salah. And I think that's 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 very. These things are very important in terms of how we perceive teams. And and I think obviously Mohamed Salah has played a very very large role with his uh, with his amazing goals. Mm, very comfortable win for Liverpool. Not much to play for, of course, uh, for Brighton. But, I mean, Nico speaking there about stories. People love Chris. Uh, the free promoted teams have stayed up, one of which, of course, is Chris Hewton's side. Um, just how impressive is that for him to maintain that Premier League status this season? Yeah, it's 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 impressive because I think seven or eight of the most regular 11 are, are from that championship campaign. So it's it's not been wholesale changes. I almost think that is the art to staying up, is is not to make wholesale changes is to, to make slight refinements. And I think you look at um, Pascal Gross, perhaps, is, is the best example. That central midfield partnership that they had last year, Dale Stevens is is okay. I would say he's serviceable. I, I'm not a huge fan of him. But they did need an upgrade in that position. And I think in Gross, they've got that, who is someone that will create and allow Stevens to sit and, and almost be a little bit of a water carrier for Brighton. Um the concern I had for them going into the season was was the striker, but credit to him, Glenn Murray has found the net. He's he's been successful, so it's it's not something you complain about. I think for me personally, when it comes to Hewton, and you could maybe extrapolate this out to, to all of the promoter teams, year two is the curious one for me because it's it's often when the sophomore slump hits. Um Birmingham with with Roger Johnson and Scott Dan are, are possibly the best example of a team that shot into the league with with brilliance and then in the second year such the work ethic deteriorated there were some bad signings and and they just slipped out of the league I, I think it might not be the same for Brighton but the the other thing that will be interesting for me is that Hewton is is much more of a a reactive manager than a proactive one and that might be more difficult for him to do in year two when there's not this sort of a law or acceptance that oh they're a newly promoted side so everything they achieve is is really good speaking of uh promoted sides from last season who've maintained their Premier League status Newcastle of course you love Newcastle Chris uh beating Chelsea 3-0 
today. Um, before we talk about Chelsea, because there's plenty to dig into there, we have to talk about Newcastle. Uh, some suggestion, I saw our good friend, the true Geordie, Brian, suggesting that it could be Rafa Benitez's last game on Tyneside. But after the game, Mike Ashley came out, issued a statement congratulating the manager on his magnificent achievement this season in finishing 10th, offering Benitez his full support, and perhaps most importantly, in terms of Rafa Benitez's future, promising every penny, handing Rafa Benitez every penny needed to keep him on Tyneside, uh, of course, in the transfer window, in terms of strengthening this side and kicking on to the next level, Chris. Yeah, the the, the statement was a little bit ambiguous, which is kind of part of the course with, with Mike Ashley. The the issue is not necessarily money at this stage. It's, it's the idea of ambition. It's the idea of Benitez being allowed to control how he spends the money. Um, there was a few signings he wanted last season, Tammy Abraham, Willie Caballero, who in his mind were deals agreed that then the club couldn't get over the line for, for whatever reason. Um, the performance today, I think, really kind of typified why they, Brighton and Huddersfield, are, have all succeeded because it's all been founded on hard work. I mean, there's definitely more nuance to it as well in terms of the, the tactical ideas and the way they set up. But also, you know, they have outworked a lot of teams. Um, and I thought that was true there. And I think the the elevator pitch for Newcastle fans to, to Mike Ashley, to Lee Charney, to, to whomever sways the most power there, which realistically is, um, is Ashley, is this is what Rafa Benitez did with a sort of relatively small budget and a lot of limitations to it signing Hosolu Manquillo, for example. Imagine what he could do with a bit more of a, a free reign. Imagine what he could achieve, achieve, especially given you look at Burnley getting into the Europa League and, and what that means for them and, and such like. So, yeah, I think it's it's good. Like I said, it's going to be interesting in that second season for all three of these promoter teams. I think the only way it's slightly different is that Newcastle's is interesting because of its uh, uncertainty rather than than anything other than that. What of Chelsea then, Nico? Uh, they went into this game with, let's say, slim hopes of still finishing in the Champions League. They needed Liverpool to lose, which, of course, they never looked like doing against Brighton. All the same, though, it was a humbling and humiliating, humiliating defeat at the hands of Newcastle. 3-0 in the end. Uh, pretty drab farewell, potentially, for, uh, for Antonio Conte in the Premier League, at least, with the FA Cup final coming up next weekend. It really was, and, and I think as sort of Newcastle grew into the game there wasn't much I mean initially I I, we've known that Chelsea has been a a counter-attacking team and I thought maybe that was the approach that they were taking but for this Newcastle team to to sort of dominate the first half and and later into the second half so clearly and concisely with having a ton of shots on target and Chelsea not having or not having any at some point and and not really taking their chances on the counter-attack I mean it just didn't look great from them and I I I struggle to to kind of understand the mentality and the the hive mind of this group of Chelsea players because obviously this is something that we've seen from them in the past. Obviously, we've seen it to a different extent um, with their performances under Jose Mourinho after he was sacked and and sort of after that and how poorly they finished that season. But then they turned it around and won the title in the, in the very next. So I, I think they have a very interesting group of players there that are capable of achieving a lot, but at the same time don't really care at certain points. And I think that's kind of what showed today, with obviously no disrespect to Newcastle. It's interesting. It feels to me, Chris, like 
this could be a huge summer of, of reconstruction for Chelsea. Obviously, Conte's future is up in the air. We're expecting him to leave. But in terms of the, the playing squad, Hazard's future, as with every summer, is up in the air. Alvaro Morata is a player who's already been linked with a return to Juventus. Uh, you know, you've got likes of Cesc Fabregas, who I think many Chelsea fans would like to see the back of. Ross Barkley and Danny Drinkwater, have they done enough to uh, to impress and potentially stay on for another season? It feels like Chelsea, they're in this difficult position where they perhaps can't spend at the top of the market anymore. They can't compete with the likes of Manchester City and Manchester United. But yet there is that sense that, you know, there are going to need to be a lot of incomings and to accommodate that outgoings in order to get this squad in a place where it can compete once again with the top four. Yeah, I, th- I think that is one of the most interesting aspects for me is that I thought this today watching Hazard that he can't be enjoying this, that the huge peaks match with the, the very shallow troughs that he's forced to, to endure with Chelsea. Because I think he sees himself as, as best way I can put it, a sort of real Madrid caliber player, world-class, maybe even Ballon d'Or challenging player. But I don't know if he's ever going to be able to, to achieve that with Chelsea. I think undeniably he is their best player. And the problem is, is that, you know, when, when I've talked to kind of Chelsea fans about this and you maybe look at Tottenham as, as not only neighbours, but a comparison of, of stability, they kind of rightly, you know, sit back and say, well, how many times have Tottenham won the league in the last five years or or the Champions League? Because for a, for a good period of time now, Chelsea have been successful by the most obvious metric. And I think... That's great, but the, the concern is is that I think football is, is very much starting to change in that sense that the idea of being disposable and, and seeking instant gratification, it's becoming harder to um, maintain that, that cycle of things purely because of the cost. You look at how significantly transfer fees have risen in the last two seasons to where Pogba and Lukaku and Mbappe and Neymar Chelsea aren't able to compete on that rung anymore. They're able to spend money. I mean, let's not be stupid here. They spent a good amount on Drinkwater, a good amount on Bakayoko. And really, I would I would say it's harsh to say Drinkwater's been a disappointment. He hasn't really played. He's He's been um, a little bit hampered by injury. But, but Bakayoko's kind of been a bit of a failure. There's no there's no other way to, to put it. He's been a massive letdown for them. Um, at the same time, the lack of control that Conte has been able to exert has clearly annoyed him after what he achieved. And I think this it goes back to what we've kind of been saying with, with Chelsea now for maybe six months, is that they need some kind of structure and stability to them. They need some kind of hierarchy, some kind of plan that not only gives them a little bit of consistency with a coach or with an identity as a football team, but also one that will allow them to give Abraham, Loftus-Cheek, that ilk of player, that young player who who basically just needs faith, time to, to go into the team because they can't keep trying to compete financially with um, the, the best teams in Europe because, yeah, they, they haven't got that financial clout, unfortunately. But is what they're doing right now that bad? Like, I guess I, I agree with what you're saying in terms of, like, they cannot compete with the Manchester cities and United's of the world anymore. And they're looking to operate in a way that they can still feasibly be in the top six while not competing on that financial scale. But is that not what they're doing at this very moment? Like the, the fact that they maybe every couple of years, they, they, or maybe every other year they finish outside of the top four. They don't have champions league football, this, that, and the other, but they can put something together in the off season. They can 
bring in a coach that they know is going to be successful in, in a league sense so much so that they have these you know high peaks and low troughs that's just the reality of a team that is not an Everton in terms of financial spending and, and spending power and you know squad ability but is not at the same time a, a Manchester United or or even a Liverpool or a City in terms of money spent and ability to spend and and squad ability like I feel like they're straddling that line because they have to and this is just the result of 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 a team that has to be in the, in that zone is it is it different now though Nico because they don't necessarily have that that safety net of Abramovich's billions in order to to bail them out of these situations and to navigate those peaks and troughs. It feels like they don't have that anymore. Well, I think if you look at the like expected table, for example, on understat, they are they did kind of um, underperform. Like they should have done a little bit better in the league table. But I certainly get what you're saying in terms of like they don't have that security of being able to buy some amazing players like right off the bat. But at the same time, there have been plenty of clubs across Europe, and I think this is probably where the most interesting thing goes is that they can be the club that makes those you know security buys. And as I've said in 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 the past, like they can perpetuate a very specific style of football and really only replace the head of that machine every every couple of years and that's just that's kind of the nature of defensive football that's what they did with mm. Mourinho they had a defensive style of football under him the squad did exceptionally well we talked about that team like they were amazing the next year they sucked then the the year after that Conte's football is not that extraordinarily different than from what Jose Mourinho's was we talked about that team like they were amazing the next year, they didn't make the Champions League. Mm. Now let's see what happens. Like I think that's just v- very much the nature of a team that, yes, they're going to have to beat the majority of the teams that you know any team in the top six is going to achieve in terms of like they're going to beat the majority of the teams under I don't know eighth place or something like that. But when it comes to to the style of football, they're not as good as pos- at possessing the ball as a Tottenham, a Liverpool, a City, a United, because they don't have the manager to do that. They're not looking to implement like a long, long time sort of uh, plan. And <laughs> so they, they can just like replace it every couple of years. And yeah, they'll have this like wayward underperformance or overperformance or not making the Champions League or making it. But I think that's just the nature of a team that has to operate within that because, as you said, they don't have that money anymore. Is there a coach out there then that you think Chelsea should be identifying or to come in and inherit this current playing squad who is, is suited to their strengths? I know Maurizio Sarri is the favourite. Uh, Luis Enrique is I, I think Maurizio Sarri is the, the opposite of what they should be going for. Exactly, because, yeah. So is yeah. are they on the verge of making a mistake where he's the favourite? Maybe uh, Brandvich sees him as an attractive option, but yet it doesn't add up in terms of the, the squad they've got there and his style. Yeah, I think that's exactly it, is that they need to find a Yardim, a Simeone, um, you know, someone that is going to be able to do what this squad has done so well. If they, and I think this this is the the point where this uh, Chelsea team goes up or down is in t- almost entirely dependent on Aiden, ha- on Aiden Hazard. If they can get him to stay, he's an amazing player in a, te- in a counter-attacking system. He can do so much if you allow him to isolate players and create chances like that. Him and William staying is, is so key. The difficulty is 
why would he stay if, as Chris is, I think, rightly saying, he sees himself as a Ballon d'Or contender, he sees himself as a title winner, this, that, and the other, and it's very important, let's not forget, from the marketing perspective, from Nike, he's a big Nike player, to stay in the Champions League, to be in those premier competitions, and to perform at that level. It's very difficult to imagine a situation where he stays and loses out on a year at Champions League at this stage in his career. It's hard to see where he could go currently, but at the same time is the danger that the pieces shift, Chris, and we see potentially Neymar, say, move to Real Madrid, a long rumoured move that seems to be picking up steam in recent weeks, and therefore that leaves that gap for the long rumoured Hazard to PSG move to come off, and therefore Chelsea are deprived of, of their best player this summer. Yeah, I think definitely. That, that for me, is, is something that I could see happening. And I think that is almost the the problem that Chelsea could find themselves in is that what I talked about before, players could be turned off because they may not believe that they can slingshot back up. But I, I don't necessarily disagree with, with Nico's characterization of where Chelsea sit in the food chain. I, I personally have slightly contrasting views on whether Sarri could be a good idea. Um, but I think, yeah, that the problem I have with, with Hazard being convinced to stay or trying to convince him to stay is the idea that your your argument is that we'll be back there real soon but the inconsistency that builds that perception is not founded in in sort of common sense almost you know what i mean it's 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 essentially saying oh we've been inconsistent forever don't worry we'll still be inconsistent but that means that good will follow bad there's there's Definitely no promise of that, and I think that's what would concern me. It does feel like Alvaro Morata's future as well is is a big question mark, um, as we mentioned there in terms of the recruitment and the uh, the turnover this summer. Some suggestion he could return to Juventus, where obviously he spent two years on loan. Some suggestion Gonzalo Higuain could come the other way, uh, but it does seem like obviously he had that incredible spell at the start of the season. Nico, I think it was seven goals and seven appearances. But after that, he seems to have tailed off. There were those quotes from him that there was too much stress in London. He didn't see himself living here for very long. And that Italy is is the perfect place for a Spaniard to live in football. Do you think that's likely that we could potentially see Alvaro Morata move back to Juventus just a year after, what, a £58 million move to Chelsea? I think it's only possible if Iguain goes elsewhere, as you said, comes the other way. I hadn't previously heard about that. But yeah, I think it's really only possible if Iguain does that because in terms of how he would fit into that Juventus team, I don't think him and Higuain linking up together would be a really good partnership. They kind of occupy the same role. And I think they they are always kind of looking to match someone up with Dybala. And I think it's either him or Higuain. So... And I think they'd rather keep Iguain because he's been amazing. So, But in terms of his, our perception of, of Murata, I think it's been a little bit tough on him because he, I, I think he's done really well in terms of an underlying numbers perspective. And I, I think it's of those things, it's more of a Chelsea problem and their inability to, to sort of feed him and give him great service and put him in the right positions as opposed to anything else that he's done. And I think... It would probably be good for him to move elsewhere, but like I said before, I don't think I don't think him going back to Juventus is is the best idea. I think, if anything, uh, a move to perhaps a Roma, obviously that is looking to better their position in the world and better their consistency at the top of Serie A, um, with Ed and Dzeko being so old, could possibly be a move that he's interested 
in considering he uh, he misses Italy. But yeah, I think um, I think our perception of him is a little bit worse than it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Should be right now. Let's talk about the mighty Tottenham Hotspur then. Uh, <laughs> confirming today their third place finish in the Premier League with a 5-4 win over Leicester. Absolutely mental game at uh, the final game of Spurs at Wembley. Uh, they were 3-1 down uh, at one point, somehow brought it back. All of a sudden it was it was 4-all. Jamie Vardy getting equalised late on, only for Harry Kane uh, to pop up with that winner at the end to put, to put a bit of sheen on the end of the season because it has been a disappointing um, last <laughs> few games that save Spurs, um, which seems to have coloured some people's perception of the season as a whole. Uh, I was on the Fighting Cock podcast earlier this week, uh, a big Spurs podcast, if you want to go and check it out. But it was interesting talking to the guys there. There is a little bit of pessimism, it feels, creeping into uh, some Spurs fans' mindsets. But, I'm but sure there shouldn't be, Adam. Well, I was going to say, I'm sure you're going to agree with me, Nico, that I was putting forward a very optimistic and sort of positive, I think, uh, attitude on that podcast and saying, look, we've, we've finished third in the Premier League. We've qualified for the Champions League three seasons in a row. Before Pochettino arrived at the club, we'd only ever managed it once. That consistency is hugely impressive. Uh, you know, being at Wembley for the whole season as well, I remember at the start of the season, the anxiety that there was around Spurs fans having to spend a whole season at the National Stadium, what impact that was going to have. Yet, here we are, I think, only having lost twice, I think, to Chelsea and Manchester City, of course, uh, almost three times today, but it wasn't quite. Um, but I think that is a fantastic achievement when you take into account those 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 difficulties that Spurs have had and those issues that many people were were exaggerating, perhaps, at the start of the season. Yet here we are to finish third again, the sixth highest wage bill in the Premier League. Spurs are punching above their weight, Nico, and we can't undervalue this achievement from Pochettino and his side, surely. Financially, they are, they are very much punching above their weight. And I think you hit the nail on the head. I will not repeat the weird allegorization that I was repeating to you and Chris before the podcast about this situation. But I think that is the point, is that though you don't get the parade, you don't get the trophy, there's nothing in the trophy cabinet that you can put. There's all these memes that the, 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 the media is putting out there about Tottenham and Pochettino and Harry Kane and Deli Alley not winning anything. This is 
an, an incredible, and I can I want to underline that twice, and Manchester United fans will be screaming right now, be jacking themselves off to the shitty European treble that they won last year, but this is an amazing achievement for Tottenham because, like you said, three seasons in a row in the top four, that's consistency, and that's consistency over three seasons. That's consistency over over like almost over 100 games, I think. And to, to do that, to, to take a club and not only change, let's take the mentality of it, but out of it, but not only change that, but change the style of play from a team, as I've reiterated on this podcast many times before, that is just kind of going to occasionally take the the scout from the top six. You'll talk about it for two weeks and then forget about it. To a team that is going to be consistently beating the teams that you need to beat in order to be a league title contender, in order to be uh, play a, a possession style of football that you need to if you're going to compete amongst your Europe's best and to have these things. Pochettino has done all of these things, and, and it, re- it really is an incredible achievement to do what he's done with the shoestring budget that they have. Mm. Um, and, and I've been I've been exceptionally impressed with that team, and I think it's 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 less about the thunderous applause of like um, obviously Liverpool have had a different road, and I think those two clubs, Tottenham and Liverpool, are, are at a very similar point, and they've taken different roads to 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 arrive at a similar place. Liverpool under Klopp have been to a European final, obviously in the Europa League. They're in one again with the Champions League, but the way that the the way that Tottenham consistently um, show up, I think, is is kind of the most important thing. So I think you guys have a lot to be sort of optimistic about as you go into the future. Well, uh, the question becomes now. Uh, I think I've said it myself on this podcast many times: uh, Where Spurs go at this crossroads that they're at. And of course, three seasons uh, finishing in Champions League places, that consistency is obviously fantastic. But there is that, there is that idea that there there does need to be an evolution. There does need to be that that taking of the there next needs step. to be a shit ton of cash. This is the summer that Tottenham make a massive investment. That's what he needs to know. I think Pochettino in a recent presser was saying they need to believe in me or some crap like that. They need to if Liverpool if Tottenham sorry. If they want to make that push to consistently be in the top four, move forward with the project, this needs to be the summer where they spend a load of money on good buys. And this is what Mauricio Pochettino is saying in his post-match press conference today. Um, It's interesting how uh, the press has sort of picked this up there, positioning it as Mauricio Pochettino outlines his Spurs vision ahead of crunch talks with Daniel Levy next week. In his press conference, Pochettino today uh, spoke about how he's got a meeting we believe next week he wants to to talk about the need to take risks if Spurs want to become a trophy-winning club. They need to create a different idea going into that new stadium next season. It does feel like Pochettino, there is that reluctance on his part. It feels in recent weeks, Chris, to uh, to guarantee his own future at the club. He's refusing to say, I will 100% be at this club next season. It feels like he's not, not playing a game with Daniel Levy. But it's clear that these talks that are going to be ongoing between the manager and the chairman in coming weeks are going to be incredibly important in in determining the direction this summer. I think so, and I think that's understandable because I think what hasn't helped Levy's position in particular is the recent fact that he gets paid, I think, some six million for his um, directorial role. That Mm, more than the outfield player. Yeah, more more than essentially the person who's scoring and, and denying the goals. And I think it's it's one of those difficult things that when you're the leader of an organization that preaches um, 
not parsimony exactly, but structure and budgetary constraints to then not seemingly have any placed on yourself is, is a little bit hard for, for those below you to swallow. And I think that's the problem. I'm not saying that, you know, half, half of his salary or, you know, if he was on even a million pounds, it would drastically change what Spurs could do in the summer. But I think it's the idea that everyone's pulling in the same direction. Um, Hmm. And I think that that's the problem is that for, for Spurs in particular, they're probably just a rung below what Liverpool spend in terms of players at the minute. The, the sort of Naby Kate is Mo Salah's, but they're not getting that same um, value from, from the deals that they're doing. And I think that's, that's the difficulty is that it's so easy to say, well, we'll just operate like Liverpool. But actually, you know, Liverpool have had their own foibles with the transfer committee in the past. They're only sort of refining the process now. It's taken time. And I think that's the problem. No Spurs fan right now wants to be told, be patient, because I think for them, they feel as if they've been patient for long enough. Hmm. It does feel like the club are in a slightly difficult position in that, of course, that new stadium is coming. Um, reports in recent weeks are that the costs, the construction costs of that stadium have spiralled to an extent where originally it was budgeted at 400 million and that's you know uh, the 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 sum that Spurs took out in bank loans in order to to finance the entire project now that spiral to 850 million it could reach even a billion which obviously means there's a huge hole there in the finances uh, to to fill which makes it difficult to see Spurs going out and spending um, a lot this summer in order to to strengthen when there is that situation, there is that context. At the same time, I think there is that need to assess, there is that need to to look back on the last four years under Mauricio Pochettino, the success, and decide where to go from there. I think Pochettino himself has said, you know, if Spurs want to compete for trophies, then everything that has been achieved is fantastic, but it's important to, to move on to that next level. And I think whether it is spending shitloads of cash, as uh, Nico so eloquently put it, this summer, uh, whether it's rethinking the wage structure at the club, which uh, which is a contentious issue among fans, I think all those issues need to be discussed and need to be assessed thoroughly by the club in order to, to determine where we are going and if we are going to take that next step next season. I'm hoping they're all going to be very positive conversations. Pochettino is going to be there next season. Uh, Harry Kane again. I mean, what uh, it's sort of flown under the radar ever so slightly because of Mohamed Salah's incredible achievements, but 30 goals this season for Harry Kane again. Uh, an incredible achievement in its own right. So, yeah, it's, it could be very exciting times. I'm, I'm, I'm glad I got my season ticket. Let's just we'll say that much. Um, we should talk about the North London rivals, though. Arsenal is the final game, of course, for Arsene Wenger today um, at Huddersfield. Complete dead rubber, of course, Nico, but a nice gesture on the 22nd minute, a round of applause from everyone in the stadium to, to signal Arsenal Wenger, Arsene Wenger's 22 years as Arsenal manager. Um, I mean, the interesting thing now is who is appointed as his successor. We saw Gary Neville on Sky Sports today saying it was disgrace, I think was the word he used, that... Uh, the, the, the successor hadn't been appointed and there's been reports in in recent days that it's essentially between Allegri, who I know you guys spoke a lot about on Thursday's podcast, and Mikel Arteta, of course a former Arsenal captain, uh, coach at Manchester City now. He potentially could be in the frame, Nico, to become the, the new Arsenal manager. I don't think so, though, because as I kind of talked about in the last podcast, City Football Group have invested time, 
money, given him insight into the coaching game, given him an incredible opportunity to shadow Pep Guardiola. Guardiola said he won't stand in his way. He won't stand in his way. But he should, and so should City Football Group, because as as you know, great a story as that would be, it is ultimately helping out a rival, and I don't think City Football Group are in the business of doing that. And so I think anyone that has been that obviously has been invested in by uh, the City Football Group, I don't think will be allowed to take that job and and so with that in mind i think i think what gary neville said about it being a disgrace that the the appointment had not been announced yet is a little bit extreme but at the same time i can understand where he's coming from in the sense that this is a club that's a lot of these teams and it's not just this cliche like bullshit like they're in a pivotal moment like this is a very pivotal moment because of how much money and where the game is going this is the ultimate global capitalization of football it's gaining traction in the united states was a huge market more people are getting tvs this that and the other more people are you know becoming fans and have the ability to um, give capital back to this giant system and that's where we're seeing all this money and that is extremely important for all these teams that are going where they're going to be at this moment in time at this moment where the money goes from already insane to just 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 unthinkable and i think that's that's kind of the biggest thing for arsenal is that they are slipping they're slipping from being consistently in the top four obviously i haven't finished there uh this season or last season but if they want to continue to be that brand that they once were in the early 2000s, they want to have the recognizable nature of being a team within the Premier League that is known to be successful and not just to be a meme and not just to be a, a subsidiary of Arsenal Fan TV. They have to do better and they have to do better under a new manager. And the fact that we don't know who that is yet is extremely troubling. So unless they know something we don't, which I hope they do, <laughs> then, you know. Well, here's, uh, Chris, I'll get your, your uh, opinions on this. So David Ornstein, who is uh, an Arsenal cult hero, BBC journalist, uh, <laughs> the memes created about David Ornstein uh, by Arsenal fans, I do highly recommend checking him out. He is, uh, he is the number one source of Arsenal information. He, uh, he tweeted yesterday, Talking about the Arsenal appointment, uh, saying that Arsenal hope to name the new boss by the World Cup. Arsenal want to have a proper process and to respect those in jobs. It's not going to be Simeone. It's not going to be Tuchel, uh, who's apparently on his way to, to PSG, of course. Uh, it's not going to be Yogi Love. It's not going to be Brendan Rodgers. It's not going to be Rui Faria, of course, who, who stepped down as Jose Mourinho's assistant manager earlier this week. Uh, what Ornstein's saying is that Arteta is among the names being considered. Patrick Vieira as well, the current uh, New York City FC head coach, is also being considered as well. Um, do you think either of those would be would be good moves for Arsenal, would be suitable moves, given, as Nico says, how crucial it is now that they get the right man in this job? Um, I, I see what Nico was saying about Mikel Arteta, and, and I don't necessarily disagree with, with his assertion. At the same time, there was something Klopp said about Steven Gerrard that has kind of stuck in my mind, that one of the reasons he liked Gerrard being with the under-19s was that he could make mistakes in private. Now, Arteta won't be doing that if he goes to Arsenal, but he will be making mistakes not at Manchester City. So there's almost part of me that thinks, yeah, I mean, he, ha he has to go at some point and, and become a senior manager, Mikel Arteta. To throw him potentially in at City without any first team experience would be whew, that would be yeah, that would be risky to say the least. So why not throw him in at Arsenal and see what he does? 
because potentially you could still take him back then. I know it sounds like a football manager game gone wrong, but I could totally see a scenario where he goes to Arsenal, has maybe minimal success, and then comes to, to Man City to take the top job. Um, I don't think it'll be Patrick Vieira, personally. Um, I think he's very much danced back and forth in terms of um, not necessarily whether he wants it, but how much he's willing to stick his neck out to want it. Um, And I think that if he was going to get it, he probably would have been talked about much more concretely than he has right now. Um, So, yeah, the fact that Allegri said that he'll be at Juventus just this evening, I believe, unless they sack him, which I don't think they'll sack him, um, makes me think it's probably Arteta is the leading candidate. Whether that means he will actually get the job, as we know with these things, is is not always as cut and dry as it sounds. Uh, Before we chat, Juventus, Barcelona, a bit of the, the European action. Um, it obviously is the final day of the Premier League season. Uh, what are your thoughts on the Premier League season as a whole? If you could wrap them up into a nice, tidy nutshell, guys, because it seems there is this perception that, you know, although City, one of the greatest champions of all time, uh, perhaps not the greatest Premier League season of all time, um, not the competition there at the top of the table, um, for the title, for the European places, etc. Perhaps it hasn't been the strongest campaign. I mean, what are your thoughts, Nico? How are you going to remember this season beyond, of course, uh, your Manchester City's team winning the Premier League? I'll remember it because of the absolute BS that you were just spewing about it not being the toughest competition. It was a tough competition, I'm just Adam. Saying that's the perception. Sick of your that's the perception. <laughs> uh, no, I, I think I'll remember it exceptionally well, obviously, as a Manchester City fan. Um, I think it will entirely depend on how next year goes and how City moves on going forward, I think. But I think I'll I'll have very fond memories. I think, like I said before, I think this is a very pivotal moment for the Premier League because of everything, monetarily, because of everything that is happening to the to the globalization or the further globalization of the of the sport. And I think, as I predicted in our in our pre season sort of preview type thing, I, I said, you know, West Ham and Stoke and those clubs would struggle. And that's not just because, you know, they they were filled with some errant players and not so great a manager here and there. It's because of this this money. And I think that's the biggest thing to underline is that so much of this so much of this evolution that we're seeing in the game, this thing that's been talked about for a couple of years, the the disparity and the separation of the fan, the club and the player all of these things are so much so ridiculously motivated by by this explosion in the game um, of money in the Premier League could not be a better sort of poster boy for that. That I think those clubs are going down because of they you know they were just kind of or those clubs struggled or are going down in Stoke City's case um, because of this because of that explosion of 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 money and there are other clubs out there that are willing to to take risks and and play. Uh, a different style of football and and not rest on their laurels and those who did and those who are going to in the future um, will similarly be punished. So I think I think I'll have fond memories of the of the season. I'm curious to hear what you two have to say though. Well, how would you remember it, Chris, or, or how do you think it will be defined? Um, of course, there's been some gloriously entertaining games, but I don't know. One trend might be that we've seen this season. It does feel like the the top six are sort of 
pulling away from from the rest of the table in a way. I know the Premier League is famed as the league where anyone can beat anyone, but it does feel a little bit like there is a almost a separate mini league within the Premier League now. Yeah, I think undeniably the fact that um, you know you had top top ten sides finishing on forty odd points that that gives credence to the idea that the ice is separate a little bit and there's there's a major six and a, a fourteen who are. I guess in essence, just trying to survive and live on for another season almost. Um, Burnley are perhaps the outlier to that theory to a, a certain degree. Um, personally, I think um, one of the main takeaways from this season is we saw not only someone break goal scoring records in Mosala, but I think we saw an Arabic player really push forward. And I appreciate that Egypt is in Africa and he's an African player, but, but a player that we don't necessarily, or a background, excuse me, that we don't necessarily see gain much prominence in football is is now considered one of the best players in Europe is being talked about as a potential Ballon, Ballon d'Or candidate. I think that's, um, I think that's just good for the, not just the optics of the league, but also just for inclusion in football in general and the idea that it's nice to see that new ground broken. Um, from a, a, a much, much more personal standpoint, I'm hoping it's the start of something positive, but history tells me that's um, not the wisest place to put your money on the table. <laughs> um, shall we finish up then by talking about a couple of European teams? Uh, Juventus, for one, Nico, uh, lifting their seventh successive Scudetto uh, earlier today, potentially Max Allegri's, as we've talked about many times in recent weeks, his, uh, his last title at Juventus seven in a row Adam don't belittle that achievement four league doubles in a row for Max Allegri incredible manager Chris has talked about I think Chris is Chris sums it up perfectly he speaks a lot more eloquently than I do I tend to stutter a lot and have all these crazy uh thoughts come into my head trying to exit my mouth at the same time but um yeah he is he's amazing I think the, the most important thing and Chris talked about it in the last podcast is that he kind of looks at the whole picture. He says, okay, this is where we're going to go in the Champions League. This is what we're going to do in the league. This is what we're going to do in the League Cup, etc." And I think there was a really good quote that this guy from Italian football TV never actually found me, but he said that Allegri at one point said the beginning of the season for him, he doesn't care about the results. He says he cares about the players getting the style of football down. And I think that in this season it was particularly important because they changed systems. But that, I think, is is key because I've I've listened to other managers and their philosophies, and I think that's that's consistent with it, is that they're, they more care about the performances and the players understanding what they're trying to get through in the first half of the season and that, that mindset of understanding that if you want to be a good team, if you want to be a trophy-winning team nonetheless, you need to have an idea of when you're peaking. You need to have an idea of when your team is going to hit their stride. And I think no manager does that better than Max Allegri. So hats off to him. And finally, Barcelona. Title winners themselves in Spain, Chris. But unbelievably, their Invincibles unbeaten record, uh, their, their dream's over after a 5-4 defeat to uh, 15th place Levante earlier tonight. Uh, incredible scenes. I think it's fair to say. Uh, 5-1 down they were at one point in this game before battling back to 5-4. But 
yeah, I mean, we mentioned it earlier that Sheen has been taken off the season. Um, we talked about it as potentially being a, a historic season. It's all it's all in tatters now, Chris. It is, um, which is, yeah, I imagine hugely frustrating. Um, I can only imagine that um, Mrs. Messi is glad that she bought plastic cups and glasses in her house tonight. Um because, yeah, his his absence coincides with their first league defeat of the season. That's not great from um, any standpoint. I think it, it may even give sort of credence to the notion that Messi has carried uh, Barcelona a little bit this season. And yet, you know, as, as someone who is very much in his infancy of uh, his understanding with analytics, everything that I read from those people who are very intelligent in that field suggests that Barcelona have been riding a luck of fortune or a wave of fortune, excuse me, for quite some time now. So it's, it's not ideal. I mean, I think there's been conflicting theories on, on sort of why it is, whether it's Messi was dropped to, to keep him fit for um, a sponsor game that they have next week before he goes away with Argentina, all these horrible things. Um, that just yeah don't don't look good aren't good for optics and so yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it just makes you think well what is for next season because to me at least it doesn't seem as if Barcelona are on the surest of footings because we're talking about Dembele leaving we're talking about all these different things they have a lot of questions to answer and it would seem not many answers at this precise moment it is um He's quite remarkable, Nico. Uh, they'd only conceded 24 goals in their opening 36 games and then conceded five in one night at Levante. Um, it is interesting what Chris is saying there. I mean, we have spoken about it in recent weeks. That I mean, is, is, is this league win, as impressive as it has been uh, in terms of you know uh, not being defeated over 36 games before tonight's defeat, is that a sense that it's paper over the cracks? Is that a sense that it's going to be incredibly frustrating if Barcelona, who were on the verge of their own historic season, then have to watch Real Madrid potentially win three Champions Leagues in a row, something, of course, which has never been done, and a, a, a sensational achievement. It is all of a sudden, it feels like it's gone from such an incredible year to uh, potentially a very disappointing one despite that title win and that double win. Mm, yeah, kind of. But I think... Um... It's still an amazing league title. Obviously, they didn't achieve the, they didn't have the pleasure of achieving the fantastic achievement that would have been an unbeaten season, which would have been the first time since 1931 in La Liga uh, for a team to do so. But at the same time, I think they they have under uh, they have overperformed. Sorry, in certain matches to a certain extent. To say that they've overperformed to the level where maybe they don't receive a league title is a different story. But I think the key thing here, and this is something that Chris and I have talked about, is like this is another case where the summer is going to be very important for them because yes a lot of this Barcelona team this current iteration of the Barcelona team is very much based around Messi and that's okay when you have the greatest player of all time you probably want to accentuate his best qualities um but at the same time they need to they probably need to replace Suarez he's been very good this season but at the same time he looks he looks about as fit as I do and I'm only six months out from an Achilles tendon <laughs> a repair. Um, <laughs> there are a few other t- uh, pieces of this Barcelona team that that, that need to be uh, evaluated in the summer. And they have the ability, both financially and from a player pull perspective, to get those pieces. But it's a matter of getting them in, getting them used to the Barcelona system. I think that's something that 
it was either Johan Cruyff or someone else spoke about in terms of, uh, you know, it's there are players that have struggled or they feel will struggle um, fitting in at Barcelona because of the style of play. And while it has changed over the past couple of years, especially under Luis Enrique and Ernesto Valverde um, in terms of the, the possession style, it still is something that I think you need time to get used to. And that's why I think the Coutinho transfer hasn't been immediate there hasn't been this explosion of success he has done well and he's assisted and he's scored and, and stuff like that but i think we're going to see full coutinho next year we're going to see and and that goes for the the other transfers that they do need to make in midfield and 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 um and other positions is that they kind of need time to vet in and the more barcelona wait for that the more time that they kind of put off those things and maybe don't have the ability to find the right guys right away um, the more dangerous it is for them as a club. And let's not forget, and I had this conversation with uh, a Real Madrid fan the other day, they're, they're one day soon approaches a, an era of Barcelona without Lionel Messi. So that is something to think about. What a day to fear. Um, guys, that does bring it into today's podcast. Uh, we're going to be back later this week on Thursday with sort of an end-of-season awards, Q&A, podcast, uh, maybe pick our own team of the season, all that good stuff to look forward to. And, of course, we've got the FA Cup final to look forward to on Saturday uh, ahead of the Champions League final the following week. So lots of great stuff to come up before the end of the season and ahead of the World Cup. Uh, before Thursday, though, Chris, where can the listeners find you? Uh, rewatching Eurovision. Hey, I don't blame you. Incredible. I don't know what that is. Everybody's talking about it. No idea what that is. You don't know what Eurovision is. Don't know what that is. Eurovision. But if they played in the second division of Spain, he'd be all on it. (laughs) Eurovision is the the song contest uh, across Europe where each country puts forward a a singer and a song and Australia for some reason competing (laughs) against each other. The whole of Europe can phone vote in to vote for a winner. What about the U S why don't we get an entry? Cause it's Eurovision. It's Europe. Let's be frank. Yeah. It's uh, it's incredibly cheesy. Uh, it's, it's terrible basically, but it's hilarious and that's where everyone loves it. Nice. Great. And Israel, Israel won yesterday Wow. with the chicken song. I think it was. The girl dressed in a kimono. So as you can see, it's all very modern and ahead of its time. It was, it was, it was very, it was, it was interesting. Let's just say that. I highly recommend you go and check it out guys. Type in Eurovision song contest winner Israel and you'll be treated to uh, yeah, quite a sight. Uh, Nico, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at Nico underscore O Morales. Adam, where can they find you? Oh, guys, you can find me on Twitter at Adam Boltwood. Uh, until Thursday, have a bloody great week. Somewhere in this hip-hop soul community Was born three, they stubbed beneath an